0: Hello everyone, welcome to Risk Roundup. Nations currently stand on the verge of the most transformative period in all of human history. As information technology, genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, and artificial intelligence merge and converge to make the once impossible imagination possible, it is not only human and machine intelligence that will merge and create unthinkable possibilities. The likes of molecular manufacturing will bring earth-shattering potential to build virtually any physical item quickly and inexpensively. The pace of technological change coming our way is expected to be so rapid, so huge, its impact so deep that human life, its expectations and experiences will be irreversibly transformed. It will not only fundamentally change human lives, but will also create new industries, destroy a few industries, impact a large number of industry sectors, evaporate a large number of businesses, create significant amount of high-tech specialized and skilled jobs, destroy a large number of uh, unskilled jobs, and create a huge amount of security risk and change the nature of security risk. It is undoubtedly going to change the whole global dynamic security and power structure. And it will be by far much more complex and much more bigger than any security risk we have ever faced in cyberspace or are facing in cyberspace currently. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. James Hughes from Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Welcome, James. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. My pleasure. So, James, uh, let me start with a very fundamental question. Uh, and before we discuss the technological conversion and its associated security risk, let's talk about a computational power that is the driving force of the technological innovation as far as uh, information technology goes, and also, you know, uh, a lot of other sectors. So there are many who say that computational power has slowed down significantly in the last decade, mainly because of reaching the end of the current paradigm of 2D microprocessors. And this is probably one of the reasons why computer manufacturers are moving towards dual-core and quad-core systems in the current model will likely end in the coming decade, before that happens, chip manufacturers will be most likely ready and hopefully ready to switch to 3D molecular computing, which will keep the exponential progress going uh, for decades longer. So what kind of changes in technological innovations will be possible because of this uh, new computational power that we are, you know, uh, looking forward to?
1: Well, I continue to remain an optimist about the Moore's law uh, progression of computational power growing increasingly powerful, uh, getting miniaturizing and kind of infiltrating into our environment and into our bodies. So I think that uh, the challenges that we face now will soon be overcome by technological innovation. Of course, I'm a sociologist, so all that has to be taken with a grain of salt. But I think the uh, consequences are pretty unpredictable because we're going to be creating an internet of things and uh, an alive intelligent environment where everything will be tagged in the spine space as it's be- beginning to be called. Um, and our bodies will be infiltrated by miniaturized robotics and, uh, and artificial intelligence in ways that will impact our health and uh, hopefully for the better. Uh, I think all of that um, is going to be uh, interacting in a way uh, with converging synthetic biology, robotics, nanotechnology, technology, and so forth uh, in ways that are, are pretty unpredictable. Uh, I think the thing that you can hold on to are that we're going to continue to try to achieve certain kinds of human goals. We're going to continue to try to become healthier. We're going to try to improve increase our human capacities for cognition and memory we're going to uh, try to grow more food and so all of these technologies whatever technologies we develop will be applied to these ends but they will also as you point out uh, create certain kinds of security risks uh, the capacities for new forms of uh, terrorism and warfare and uh, just uh, unanticipated accidents that we have to begin to prepare for
0: Yes, you're right, James. You know, I agree to your assessment. So uh, Now, there are many people who believe that in less than 50 years, that means in our lifetime, machines will be able to do, if not all the work that we humans can do, but a very significant portion of the work that we can do. So how should any human feel about these changes that are coming their way? That, you know, robots or, you know, machines will be able to take over.
1: Well, uh, technological unemployment is one of those issues that, The mainstream policy community has not yet grappled with seriously. They continue to hold to the dogma that because uh, the economy has adapted to previous technological innovations and created new forms of occupation that uh, replace the old forms that were destroyed by technological innovation, that that will happen again in the future. And I'm one of those who thinks that the power of artificial intelligence and robotics will accelerate so quickly. That, that won't be possible that we uh, that many human beings will be left unemployed and unemployable in the foreseeable future there are many who take seriously the acceleration of artificial intelligence and robotics who are more focused on the long-term catastrophic risks that could be posed by those so uh, things like uh, a hard takeoff scenario of a terminator type robot and and those are, I think, also legitimate risks to look at. But it's these uh, it's these proximate issues that need a lot more attention because uh, if, you know, artificial intelligence in the long run uh, poses a threat to us, many of us may already have starved to death by the time that happens. So we need to figure out how to have an economy in the context of these rapidly accelerating trends.
0: Yes, yes, you are right. You know, we have to evaluate both, you know, the... Risk and rewards that we will have with everything. So uh, while the exponential pace of technological progress is itself accelerating, there are many who feel that for now the progress and development remains limited by the basic intelligence of the human brain, which, according to many, that it hasn't changed appreciably for probably you know. Uh, few, you know, uh, decades or few centuries, you know, and uh, with the increasing power of computers, some theorize that it may become possible to build a machine, that we may be able to build a machine um, that exceeds the intelligence of a human. If a machine could be built by humans that exceed the problem-solving and inventive skills of a human, it would conceivably build another machine of even greater capability. So, the possibility that we could build computers that are smarter than us, and that those computers could build still smarter computers until it reaches the limits, that possibility is uh, nerve wracking, and that we have to think about what will be its impact in terms of industries, nations, societies, and human survival.
1: Well, I do think that there will be uh, what's referred to as an intelligence explosion, that artificial intelligence will allow the creation of new forms of artificial intelligence, which will be increasingly uh, capable. But I think the humanistic vision, uh, the optimistic vision, is that we will be able to stay in that loop that the, the capacities of organic brains to adapt Will be augmented by nano neural robotics and, and other technologies that will allow us to interface with artificial intelligence and benefit from its growing capacities um, if that's not the case if artificial intelligence takes on some kind of will of its own then i think there are many negative possible consequences m- more negative ones to imagine than positive ones because artificial intelligence potentially could have a will of its own and uh, and would, as you suggest, outpace your capabilities of organic human beings to keep up.
0: Yes, you are right. Now, there are some who say that the creation of smarter than human intelligence represents a breakdown in humans, which is our ability to model our future. So uh, where do we go from here? Is it wise to create machines more powerful than ourselves? What is your assessment?
1: I think we should approach the field with a great deal of caution. The The problem is that the lines of research of artificial intelligence are occurring in so many different domains, so many different contexts uh, internationally. Difficult to imagine uh, how we could regulate all of those different kinds of research. Um, most people don't see those kinds of research as, as dangerous as the artificial intelligence uh, researchers, for instance, at Oxford, uh, Nick Bostrom's recent book, Superintelligence, suggests. So they don't accede to the need for any kind of regulation of their work to begin with. Uh, Very few governments are looking into this yet. So it's difficult to imagine how we're going to uh, engineer precautionary principle into artificial intelligence from the beginning. I think what's easier to imagine is that we build a kind of international, uh, resilient infrastructure for responding to cyber threats, which will allow us to respond to the increasing capacities of cyber criminals and cyber terrorism and cyber warfare. and would also lay the groundwork for the identification and uh, response to potentially emergent artificial intelligence threats.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Now, it is said by many, James, that the human capacity for information processing is limited, and yet there is an accelerating change in the development and deployment of new technology. So this potential or, you know, imminent technological tsunami, according to many, when that starts, you know, hitting uh, the innovation uh, circle and uh, humans are bombarded with new innovation and new products and new services, uh, it It's probably going to create an overload on the human mind and its inability to cope has to be solved by the use of ever more sophisticated information intelligence which reverse engineers the human brain. So is this the right approach to go for, you know, to expand the capacity of human uh, absorption about, you know, all this information?
1: I'm a little bit cautious about the predictions of future shock. We started to hear those predictions in the 1950s, and I think there are many precursors in previous centuries of people suggesting that things were changing so quickly that they were getting out of hand. And what we see is that um, the rate of adoption of new technologies has accelerated, that uh, the speed at which uh, smartphones spread throughout the world is faster than than the spread of radio. So people seem to be adapting to technological innovation at an accelerating pace. Uh, there may be uh, some kind of physical and psychological limitation on how fast we can adapt, and, and so future shock may still be waiting us in the future, but uh, I don't think we, there's much evidence of it yet.
0: Yes. And Now, uh, the emerging technological superconversion has the potential to be revolutionary and rewarding if it's inherent and... Uh, Integrated risks are understood and effectively managed, but there is enough brain power across nations that can collectively address the critical risks coming to uh, its industries, its uh, governments, its nation. It is a cause of great concern that there is no credible initiative for integrated risk research or emerging security risks.
1: I'm sorry, you cut out for me. Could you say the last sentence again, please? Um, I
0: was say, saying that, you know, uh, the emerging technological superconvergence has the potential to be revolutionary and rewarding if it is if its inherent and integrated interconnected interdependent risks are understood and effectively managed while there is enough brain power across nations that can probably collectively address the critical risk coming to each nation its industries its governments it is a cause of great concern that there is no credible initiative for integrated risk research are emerging security risks? What are your
1: thoughts on? That? Uh, <clears throat> well, I agree. I think we need uh, a lot more anticipatory governance in this domain. We need a lot of people working on these topics. Uh, eugenic policies in a lot of countries: United States, Germany, and uh, we decided after World War II that we should that the state should meet a very high burden of proof before interfering in parents' reproductive decision making. Now. There's an issue of what is a negative right and what's a positive right. That, in other words, you can stake the claim that parents should have a right to make certain kinds of genomic choices about their children, but shouldn't necessarily uh, be able to demand state support for making those choices. So um, that, that you know, you shouldn't necessarily have uh, support from your state uh, universal health insurance system to pay for your capacity to tinker with your kids' genes. I understand that might be the position that some countries would take, Um, but that also leads to the possibility that only the wealthy will be able to make certain kinds of genomic choices and that that could have negative social consequences as well. But I think in general, um, there are some parental choices that I think would trip my uh, need to regulate. So if parents were, uh, systematically making certain choices to limit their children's abilities, to limit their capacities in the future. I don't understand why they would do that, but um, certainly some parents don't send their kids to school, uh, and, and we intervene when that occurs, and we require that parents feed their kids well and, and make other choices in their interest. So <clears throat> if there were genomic choices being made by parents that were against kids' interests, I would certainly think that there would be a regulatory concern there. But I don't think that the state should generally interfere if parents want to improve the health or mental capacities of their children. That's That, I think, should be certainly within a parent's domain.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, for high disease and things like that, yeah. I mean, that should be available to everyone. I agree to that. Now, this enhancement capability will also open the possibility of opening the gate of non-human animals enhancement by some extremists, I mean, some people would get carried away and they said, that, okay, we want uh, enhancement for our pets. Where do we go from that? Who will decide and who will deal with uh, such responsibilities of defining and deciding where should this, you know, be limited? And who, uh, should it be limited, this kind of thing, enhancements only to humans or should it go to non-humans, that is animals and birds and all that? Who decides all that?
1: Well, uh, I actually addressed this question in my book, Citizen Cyborg, which, um, lays out a kind of schema of the different kinds of creatures and what obligations we have to them. My, uh, rough sketch is that there are certain creatures that are capable of pleasure and pain and our obligation to those creatures is to minimize their pain. But there are other creatures, um, that approximate more of our own mental capacities and, um, so for those kinds of creatures, creatures with personhood, we have more of a moral obligation to um, enable their development as, as persons, as creatures. So I do think that uh, we probably will and and in some cases probably should, Uh, do experimentation on cognitive enhancement of uh, chimps and uh, dolphins and some of our closer species.
0: Humans have reached a point where anywhere in the world, any individual can have instant access to needed information in a form that they want. And uh, they are also very well on the path to comfortable wearable sensors that we were talking about earlier, and computers that will enhance every individual's awareness of his or her health conditions. I mean, so many applications are coming on iPhone and so many uh, such amazing developments, innovations and developments are happening in healthcare sector, that all these things are coming uh, to our way. You know, every human is going to be impacted. However, we still have not seen organizational structures and management principles that are based on fast reliable communications of needed information and that would vastly increase to the effectiveness of administrators in business education and government just we were talking about that you know there are no proper institutions who is you know managing or governing these kind of changes or who are proactively looking into the risks that you know are coming our way and you know preparing their nations or their industries So we don't have the right frameworks. We don't have the right models, organizational models. We don't have the right processes. We don't have the right people looking into this. We don't have the right institutions. So how do we manage, you know, such complex changes that are already coming our way?
1: Well, I agree with your diagnosis. Um, I'm not sure about the prescription. I think uh, we, the, the field of futurism has pretty much dried up. And it's largely because it's been absorbed into lots of other domains, predictive analytics and um, scenario planners and so forth. And that may be a good thing. I think futurism needs to be more broadly uh, shared set of skills um, as opposed to just one group of people who are thinking about these things. Um, In terms of anticipatory governance, uh, both in the private sector and in the public sector, um, we, de- we definitely need institutions that are devoted to it. Uh, but again, I think it's probably better if they're distributed as opposed to centralized. Uh, for instance, with the Food and Drug Administration, uh, it would be great if they had a more anticipatory governance structure thinking about what emerging health ap- uh, informa- informatics applications, for instance, or emerging medical devices or emerging pharmaceuticals might be. that they'd be better prepared for the innovations that are coming. Uh, I don't necessarily think that uh, that group of futurists or anticipatory policy planners in the FDA should necessarily have to be a part of some super agency that would be shared with the homeland security, for instance. Homeland security needs its own anticipatory governance structures. So yeah, it's hard to uh, imagine exactly how it would be best implemented, but you're certainly right. It, we need new structures and new uh, training for the for folks to do that job.
0: Yes, of course, and uh, we have to be proactively planning and preparing what is going to uh, happen to the you know large number of you know individuals because the changes that are coming our way is going to not just impact few industries. It's going to pre- pretty much impact all industries and so many, you know, there will be so many layoffs, so many people will lose their jobs, so much, you know, impact will be there. And if we, as a nation, any nation, if they are not prepared, then the consequences are very, you know, dire. So, yes, we have to be prepared. Now, this is one question that probably, you know, I know you have been involved with transhumanist movement, and, you know, this is something that uh, is mind-boggling, what is happening, the ability to... Have preserve our mind or you know, mind uploading. So, among some futurists and within the transhumanist movement, mind uploading is treated as an important proposed life extension technology. Some believe that mind uploading is our current best option for preserving rather than you know, uh, cryonics. The possibility to have a permanent backup to our mind file. And as a means of functional copies of human mind to survive a global disaster or interstellar space travel is mind boggling. Is this really going to happen that we will be able to get every all the information that is in our brain, put it on a computer or a chip? And, you know, it could go through the cyberspace. It could end up somewhere and we will be able to upload that to some robot or to another human being. That it seems that technology for that is coming our way. Now what would be the impact of that? that you know you take out all the information from someone's brain, upload send it you know through the internet somewhere, and you know you can upload it you know in some uh, to a robot or or to you know another human being. What are the consequences of that?
1: <clears throat> well. It it partly depends on what uh, legal status we give those uploads. I think uh, my own position and and I presume the position of many will be that if something can think and feel in the same way that a human being can, especially if it's a copy of a human being, that it should have the same moral status um, and perhaps the same citizenship status that we have. If that's the case and you make a copy of yourself, then we face some serious uh, questions. Does it get half of all your stuff? Does it you know, does it have property ownership over your things or do you own it? If you own it, then it's a form of slavery. If it's really as self-aware as you are, um, it's, it becomes more like your twin as opposed to your slave. So uh, we, we do have to figure out what the legal and moral complexities of mind uploading will be. It's not very proximate because our capacity to uh, create a self-aware artificial intelligence is probably decades away. And our capacity to record the processes of the brain in a way with sufficient detail and understand the translational language that we would need to, um, to implement that then in some non-biological uh, system That's probably even further away. So we have a little bit of time to figure this out. But um, increasingly, people are having brain-computer interfaces that are able to communicate in in a two-way nature with the brain. Um, And the miniaturization of that process will eventually lead to um, something like uh, a cyborg Brain computer interface that uh, enables you to back up parts of your memory and supplement parts of your cognition with uh, neural prostheses. And that process then will lead to mind uploading. Um, I don't think it's going to be, you know, some of the ideas about mind uploading have been things like um, you slice open someone's brain, you know, uh, micrometer by micrometer when they die and take a picture of each slice and then upload that information into a computer. I'm very pessimistic that those kinds of processes would have, would result in anything. Um, It's like saying that you could recreate the economic and cultural vitality of New York City by taking a snapshot of where everyone was at any particular moment in the city and slicing it down to the atom level and then rebuilding it in artificial and, you know, in a cyberspace. Um, That would give you a great picture of, where everyone was at one particular moment in the city, but it wouldn't give you a picture of the complexity and the interaction and the dynamism of the city, and that's what we really need when we're talking about consciousness. That we, we and and we need something that captures the the flow over time as well, because you know uh, our capacities for memory um, are dynamic. We you know you if you were to take a picture of every thought that's in my head right now, it would be about you and <laughs> you know, in this particular interview and the topics we're discussing, but um, you would want uh, a mind upload to have the memories of of your childhood and the memories of all your interactions with people and your favorite color and things like that. And that only would occur over time. So, I think we're talking about a kind of uh, intimate uh, coevolution of the brain with nano neural uh, robotic interfaces. That will only be possible in a couple decades from now. So, yes, I do think we're eventually going to get there. We're not going to get there quickly. We do need to be thinking about what the uh, policy and political and economic consequences of creating our mind clones will be.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you are right. I mean, it is the best fingerprinting is already there. If you have a memory about certain event or you know about any any particular, you know defined event then that technology already exists that you know it will tell you whether that memory is there in a human brain or not but the advances are happening so rapidly James you know that you know that, that there are, this neurological uh, science is advancing so rapidly brain mapping and uh, there are fascinating changes happening so I'm not sure if it's two couple of decades away we will just have to wait and see you know when that comes down Our way, and when that technology is probably going to be accessible by all the humans, then we are, you know, uh, going to be facing very, very complex risk. And uh, uh, we'll just have to see who is going to be accountable for that, you know, to manage those kind of risks, how to prevent, you know, uh, some unthinkable scenarios. But uh, anyway, before we go further, there is something that is happening within the genomic. and biotechnology and biological sciences that is probably a very cause of concern right now that there is a movement growing quietly steadily and with great speed do it yourself biologist and that at the groups one group's name i came up uh, uh, in my research is diy biology diy diy bio what do you know about it and uh, Is there a cause of, is this a cause of concern or celebration? Because these are biologies that, you know, have their own technology, have their own, you know, tools and they do gene splicing and they are creating things in their probably basements or, you know, uh, in the garages and, you know, any place they own. See, having this kind of ability for information technology is one thing. Having this kind of ability and uh, people, accessibility for people to do this kind of gene splicing and create something entirely new is a whole, another kind of, you know, risk and challenges we are talking about. What, what do you know about these kind of groups and uh, what are your thoughts about it?
1: Well, it's interesting to compare the two um, information technology tinkering versus bio tinkering, because I would argue that information tinkering has caused a lot more havoc in the world so far than biological tinkering. Um, we've had groups theoretically interested in cyber ter- bioterrorism and biowarfare for a long time, but we have not seen uh, an effective uh, biowarfare, bioterrorist agent be created out of these synthetic biology processes. Now, I think that that's only a matter of time. There will eventually be um, small groups, individuals, that uh, have the capacity from the kind of DIY bio tools that you're talking about to wreak havoc. But if you compare it to the number of hackers around the world and the dark net of uh, hacking tools and um, and stolen credit card numbers and the ability to get into uh, top secret government archives and release documents, that, that kind of havoc has been much greater in proportion to any of the, you know, so far, zero attempts at, at yeah, bioterrorism. James, that is only
0: the economic impact. That's only the money and financial impact. Tampering with this kind of biological, you know, things is, if it gets into the hand of terrorists and if they create, let's say, a new kind of virus, a new kind of, you know, uh, bacteria or some kind new kind of disease or I mean, there's so many possibilities if it goes in wrong hands. Then the kind of, you know, impact that it would create, it would be millions of deaths. It would be, you know, so much, it's so many things that you cannot even think of. So I do not compare the, you know, impact that we would suffer economically, financially with the, you know, impact that human will, you know, suffer because uh, at the cost of their lives or, you know, health or, you know, all kinds of diseases for which we are not prepared. So even though it looks like, yeah, it's a, economically we are facing larger impact by these, you know, cyber criminals and hacking and all that, if this goes into the hand, you know, in, the wrong, uh, in wrong hands, I think we will not be prepared for that.
1: Well, I agree. I, mean, I was somewhat disappointed the um... – Uh, Obama administration's bioethics commission, one of the charges that they took up a couple years ago was to look at the regulation and ethics of synthetic biology, um, of which DIY bio would be one subcomponent. And uh, they came to fairly benign conclusions about what the risks were uh, and had more of a watch and see attitude. I tend to be a little bit more of an alarmist about those things, more along the lines of what you're talking about. However, uh, you know, we, we've had a hard time over the last 50, 60 years regulating access of nuclear to nuclear proliferation. Uh, we've had a regime attempting an international atomic uh, energy regulatory regime attempting to regulate the access of North Korea, uh, Iran, Iraq before the invasion to nuclear materials and to building nuclear weapons. And those are relatively easy to detect to detect and to uh, uh, you know, to send in uh, observers to see whether they're actually being built or not. Um, with synthetic biology tools that could potentially wreak the kind of havoc we're talking about, it's going to be almost impossible. It could be in a room the size of my study here that I could have a lab
0: that, that would
1: have kind of destructive potential so the regulatory capacities, I think, are going to become increasingly limited. And that means that we need more proactive uh, uh, kind of immune system policies. We need to be able to rapidly detect the emergence of pathogens in the world that mostly are going to be, 99% are going to be natural. They're going to be emergent from natural mut- mutagenic processes.
0: But Think about that. I mean, you're talking about developing technology that can quickly detect pathogens. I mean, look at the cyberspace right now. We are getting so many malwares, you know, every single minute, probably, that the antiviruses, software, they don't have the capability to cope with that. If we are not able to cope up with, you know, the malwares and viruses and trojans and all that that are coming our way in cyberspace... How are we going to deal with, you know, the live human, I mean, deadly pathogens that are coming our way and how quickly will we be able to come up with technology that can detect that in air, soil, and water? You're talking about an impossible task. I
1: I think it's all a degree. I mean, I don't necessarily agree that we haven't had a capacity to respond to cyber uh, attacks. I mean, we have, Um, uh, both official and private sector initiatives, Uh, you know, most of us have uh, anti-virus and anti-spam software in our computers. It gets updated on a daily basis. It automatically notifies their headquarters whenever there's a detected new pathogen. And eventually, we need the same kind of thing in the biological and nanotechnological uh, sphere um, that would have that kind of rapid response. And you're I imagine having an immune system in 20 or 30 years that uh, gets a daily update from the CDC about what pathogens are extant in the United States and what my body needs to be prepared to uh, to be on the lookout for and how to respond to them. Uh, you know, we don't have that kind of thing yet, but we're building an infrastructure of early pathogen detection and uh, international responses, the creation of international vaccines and uh, and the sending of early response teams out of uh, MERS and and Ebola the responses to SARS and so forth uh, we've become increasingly rapid in our ability to detect and respond to, to pandemics so you know i uh, I just don't think that there's going to be a very good way to proactively uh, restrict on the technology side <clears throat> people's capacity to wreak this kind of havoc it's like saying is there, what's the best way to prevent people from hitting each other with hammers? Is it to build some kind of safety mechanism into a hammer that makes sure that no hammer can ever be used to hit someone? Or is it to have a a regime in place, a set of laws, that if you hit someone with hammers, or if we suspect that you're going to hit people with hammers, then we're going to have ready responses in place. And I think that's probably the only way that we're going to be able to deal with these threats as well.
0: I mean, I mean, think about uh, for coming back to the point about the antivirus softwares or, you know, ability to detect all different malwares that are, you know, coming our way. A new report I read somewhere said that, you know, we are able to detect only about 25 to 40 percent of the malwares uh, that the antivirus softwares are only proactively able to, you know, Uh, fight uh, only 25 to 40 percent of the malwares they are not uh, 100 percent and lot of people and and not lot but some people are saying that antivirus softwares are going to be history in the coming years because they are just not effective a new kind of technology is under development that would probably take its place that can you know effectively manage all the threats of the malwares and uh, viruses and trojans coming our way. But that is something, you know, I still have to do more research on that. But from what I have read, you know, a little bit, it says that, you know, the antivirus offers are not effective. Now, coming back to the ability to uh, giving, uh, you know, free uh, access uh, to all these technologies uh, for development, uh, for, you know, biological, synthetic biology, as you said, that that is a very different uh, scenario, uh, James, because we right now, don't have the capacity to quickly, you know, come up with vaccines or quickly come up with medicines to have these kind of groups. It's like this, you know, to provide the recipe of, you know, how to make an atomic bomb on the, and we leave that on the internet. So if there is information available about the whole human genome publicly, you know, available on internet, there are so many bright people that are not working for the good side and working for the, you know, wrong side that could use the information of human genome. And, you know, if with this ability to do the synthetic biology, they can come up with some very deadly, you know, scenarios. So I, I, I when I think about these possibilities it is a very, it's a very critical risk that we are going to face in the coming years if we don't have effective way to deal with that. So, I mean, combined with, you know, the information that is going to be available about the human genome sequence and the synthetic biology, you know, if everyone is able to use the information and create something, then we are going to face a lot of complex challenges, James. And I hope that, you know, there are enough people thinking about it. And enough people you know proactively preparing that now this is probably the last question we will or last point we'll discuss i mean there is so much to talk about in this uh, uh, technological super conversions that's coming our way but uh, we will we are probably going to be uh, out of our time on that but this is the last question and that's probably more about a business and economic impact is that you know with Amidst the birth of these new sectors and industries due to inevitable technological tsunami that's coming our way because of the potential emergence uh, and and, uh, conversions of these uh, technologies, technology super conversions, there will be rise of mega corporations that will own these technologies. Some corporations will own, you know, technology or artificial intelligence, something else, you know, and these corporations will become huge corporations for molecular manufacturing who has who owns the technology for that so what changes challenges and collision do you see due to rise of mega corporations that is one question and then another is that the, because of this you know rise of mega corporations and you know because private industry will own most of these innovations the wealth this enormous wealth will be in the hand of you know few who will own this, you know, technology or patent or, you know, process uh, way of doing things. So what will be its impact across nations when there will be, you know, development of such huge mega corporations and, you know, this huge wealth that will be coming because of that technology and potential of super conversions that will, you know, be in the hands of very few.
1: Well... <laughs> I've, I've been on the policies that we need are probably redistributive policies. We need uh, progressive taxation. We need um, forms of countervailing power on the part of democratic governments to uh, rein in corporate power, uh, and that's an old struggle. We've been trying to do that for 100, 150 years. Um, uh, throughout the western industrialized world increasingly in the developing world so um, it's not a new story uh whether the emerging technologies i mean there's there's a kind of mythos in uh emerging technologies field that distru- disruptive uh, innovation will create a kind of dynamic churn of who the the big corporations are. But um, IBM is still a pretty big corporation. Microsoft is still pretty big. Uh, the big four automakers are still pretty big. Um, so there may be new big corporations to worry about, but I don't see the old ones going away either. Um, and and the ways that we deal with them, I mean, there will be some who will argue for trust busting, and others will argue for tighter governmental regulation and more quasi-public utility form of uh, interrelationships between governments and, um, and uh, corporations. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that these are new questions uh, and I don't think that the solutions are gonna be totally novel either.
0: But the time and the uh, scenarios and the nature of the technology and the nature of the challenges we are facing are all interdependent, interconnected. So there is, these are in a way some new challenges and new risks and you know we will have to come up with new solutions and new answers to this because, you know, we lived in an isolation age before where, you know, there was not much interconnectedness, there were not much interdependencies. It's entirely different now. And if you uh, have, I mean, you must have noticed that, you know, NISC released the cybersecurity risk management framework. That is an acknowledgement of the changing times that, you know, government alone cannot manage the security risk facing, you know, the nation's it is going to be an integrated approach where I know all the private and public will have to work together. That means, uh, as I say, that nations, government, industries, organizations, and academia, they all will have to work together because these are the risks that no government can manage on its own. Security is no longer a government affair. It's an NGO affair. So the times are changing. The you know nature of risk that we are facing uh, is changing. So the nature of security is changing. So we will have to come up with very different answers, James, that old answers and old questions are, I think, going to be history. Uh, we will have to look at these questions and we'll have to look at these problems in a very different way and we'll have to come up with, you know, proper solutions because we have been fighting those battles, you know, as you are saying that these are old questions and uh, we, have, uh, we have been, you know, fighting this war. It's not working. We'll have to come up with different answers. The problems are there, Where there but the bigger problems are coming our way and we'll have to come up with you know a new way of managing those because if we try to fight those problems or fight, try to manage those risks in the old ways it, then it is not going to work so uh, with that thought uh, i'm going to conclude our session here there is so much more to discuss we'll have, but we'll have some other sessions in the coming days and months and years we will be aggressively talking about uh, the risk that is coming our way because of the technology super convergence, the risk groups, the cybersecurity risk research center, and strategic risk research center are created for these very reasons that we can identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing nations, its government industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And these centers and this platform that we have, the risk roundup, we will discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies that we need to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also the coming technological super So we will, you know, with your help and with uh, uh, expert, you know, guest uh, like James, we will... Try to come up with, you know, proper answers and we will try to define what needs to be there and what we have to be prepared for. So that's it for today, friends. Uh, uh, we had a really uh, very interesting discussion with James. And James, thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on Risk Roundup. Uh, for our global listeners and viewers, they are going to benefit tremendously from your expertise and from your thoughts. And we hope that, you know, you would come to come on Risk Roundup some other time. And uh, we look forward to that. Great. Thank you you so much. Uh, So that's it, friends. Uh, I hope to see you again next time. Thank you.